you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. As we continue our journey through this wonderful chapter, we still have plenty of time left in the Gospel of John, but the light is at the end of the tunnel for chapter 12. This week and next week, and we will be on to chapter 13. And there still is much that is very rich remaining to us in this wonderful gospel. This morning we take up uh, a text in which John gives us some information about the unbelief of those who heard Jesus' teaching. You may recall that last week I said we heard the final public teaching words of our Lord before his crucifixion. And so now John begins to give us an explanation for our benefit of why Jesus' sermon, his words, do not result in mass conversions to him. The unbelief that has taken a hold of God's people. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, They did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us your word. We thank you that your word reveals you and your purposes, your character, and your mission. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes and by the power of your Holy Spirit illuminate our minds and hearts that we might indeed see the Lord Jesus Christ. And seeing him, we might love him all the more. This we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we have been studying this Gospel of John for some time now. It's been more than a year, and as I've intimated, it's going to be more than a year for us to complete it. So we should know by now that this Gospel was written to show that Jesus is the Christ and that we can have eternal life by believing in Him. But one of the other purposes of this Gospel is that John wrote it for early Christians, for the early church, to help them to explain their faith to others and to bring others to Jesus. 
So another purpose that John had in mind was to explain why so many Jews did not believe in their Messiah. We today take it for granted that the church is made up predominantly of Gentiles. But the Bible tells us that salvation is from the Jews. And so a question we might have is, why didn't they get it? Why didn't the Jews believe? And I think in that sense we can relate to that question. Because we would ask ourselves, why don't more people believe in Jesus today? Why is it so difficult to bring someone to Jesus? What may seem so obvious to those of us who believe is not convincing to others. How could the people who saw Jesus do miracles that showed his deity, like raising Lazarus from the dead, not believe? John gives us insight here. It's not that they were not convinced. It was that they would not believe. The problem of unbelief is always a moral one, not an intellectual one. And so this morning from our text, we see three things about unbelief. First, we see blind eyes. Second, we see hard hearts. And third, we see wrong loves. That unbelief is described by eyes that are blind, hearts that are hard, and love that is set on the wrong things. Well, let's begin then by looking at the blind eyes of those who hear Jesus. The first thing that we see, not only from our text, but even from all that comes before our text, is that the evidence of who Jesus is, is there. Jesus did not hide who he was. He did not hide what he was coming to do. It's not as if it was a puzzle to be put together or a secret decoder ring was needed. It's not that he only spoke in whispers and hushes and on very rare occasions. No, we can think about all that Jesus taught in the gospel here. But all we really need to do is look right at this chapter. Jesus had just come into Jerusalem and been honored as a king. The crowd treated him as the coming Messiah and he accepted it. He didn't correct them. As a matter of fact, his entrance was done in such a way to fulfill the prophecy of the Messiah King. Jesus then also taught that the only way to have life is to follow him. The Son of Man who would be glorified. And he was explicit that he would be lifted up. And that what would follow from that was the judgment of the world and that he would draw all peoples to himself. Jesus was very explicit. If there is a real myth here, it is the myth of Jesus as the good teacher who never claimed he was God. That's a myth. It's a myth perpetuated upon us by people who do not want to believe in him, who want to be far from God, 
who don't want to be under the king of kings. And so they make Jesus into something he never claimed to be. A mild-mannered, a very weak opinions, not teaching, helpful person. Someone who could be dismissed, who could be left out in the waiting room. So let me ask you this. What do you believe about Jesus' teaching? Do you find yourself on occasions changing it to make it more acceptable to others around you? Do you change the way Jesus taught about marriage or divorce or love or the Lord's Day or theft or adultery or anything else because it becomes more palatable to the world that surrounds you? You see, the evidence is clear to see. But it's not just Jesus' teaching we have. We also have these clear signs. Jesus did more than teach. He'd given signs. John has laid out seven significant signs for us. They're so significant that you will recall the first half of the book of John is called the book of signs. Now think about what Jesus had done. He multiplied food for thousands. He walked on water. He healed a lame man. But even more, a man who was blind from birth was given sight. And Lazarus, he raised from the dead. All of these signs pointed to Jesus' lordship over creation and life. And John is very specific about that. Oftentimes in the scriptures, a miracle is described by a particular Greek word that means power or a work of power. John uses a different word. A word that means primarily sign. You see, these works were not just works of power and might. They pointed to who Jesus is. And that's significant. But John reminds us that we're not the only ones who saw these signs and heard this teaching. It's not as if people might have just missed a very few opportunities to see these signs or to see who Jesus was. You know, have you ever had a special event that you needed to make a reservation for or a special product you wanted to purchase and it had to be done at just the right time? You have to get online at 2 o'clock and get your tickets for this event. And so if you do that, if you're anything like me, you set yourself in front of the computer at about 1 o'clock. And you sit there and you're looking at that web page and you're refreshing it just to make sure it's working it. You go up and you look at the internet devices. The lights are all on. That's good. Everything looks. The power's on. It's not going to go off. All right, I'm ready. And then at 2 o'clock, you get ready to order your tickets. And then inevitably something happens. The website freezes. Or the power does go out. Or the internet decides to get flaky then. And you're furiously trying to make it work and refresh and go and open another browser and do it. And then at 2.03, you found out it's all sold out. You've missed everything. That was your one chance in the world and gone like that. I think sometimes that's what we think about Jesus. That if you weren't there at exactly the right moment, at exactly the right time, with everything aligned, you would just miss who Jesus was. But John tells us that's not the case. John says that Jesus had done so many signs. Not just many. So many. Now how many is that? 
I'm sorry, I can't tell you. We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus did many other signs beyond those that John recorded. He tells us that in chapter 20. And John tells us that if he recorded (coughs) all of the things that Jesus did, the world would not be big enough to hold the books that would be required. Do you see signs of Jesus' work today? Do you look around and see the lives of people changed by Jesus? Do you look around the world and see how different it is in every way because of Jesus? Jesus' followers established hospitals, schools, charities. Jesus' followers established rights for women and children. Jesus' followers fought for the importance of life. Jesus' followers fought slavery. Everywhere you look, the signs of Jesus are seen. But John reminds us that didn't make a difference. Look with me at the second half of verse 37. They still did not believe in him. This is... No surprise to us, but they willingly look away from the evidence, from what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. They were not convinced by the mountain of evidence. I think often we think that we can convince people to come to Jesus if we can just find that one more critical piece of evidence. That one argument that they haven't heard before. That one way that we can speak. And quite frankly, that puts an awful lot of pressure on us. As if we're the ones to blame if someone doesn't come to Jesus. Because we weren't effective enough in our apologetic. But it's always been the case for unbelief. That unbelievers look at a mountain of evidence and they look away. They don't want to believe. They don't want to be changed. They don't want to submit. It goes all the way back to the days of Moses. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 29, the great trials that your eyes saw, he writes to the Israelites. Now remember what that is. That's ten plagues. That's the death of all the firstborn. That's the parting of the Red Sea. These are no small things. These great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. It's what Isaiah says when John quotes him in verse 38. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a passage that comes from that great chapter. In Isaiah, Isaiah 53, that lays out the wonders of the Messiah and the work that he will do and the salvation he will bring. And Isaiah says, who has believed our report? And the answer we might give is almost nobody. Nobody's listening. Nobody's believing. Nobody sees the arm of the Lord in this. They didn't see it in Isaiah's day. And John is saying they didn't see it here. Isaiah is asking that question right now. Here's the Messiah. He's been revealed to you. Who believes? And once again, the answer is virtually no one. 
Now, why is this? I think first it's because we think that belief is simply a matter of presenting enough evidence to a neutral mind to convince them. But the truth is, the minds of sinners are not neutral. They're wicked. They're sinful. They're bent on sin. And so the unbelief that John is talking about here presumes that the people are lost in sin. Do you remember what John wrote in chapter 3, verse 19? That people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. Have you ever argued with someone who didn't want to believe something? Say, for example, they were convinced that the world was flat. And you say, well, no, the world's not flat. And they say, no, look, it's straight, it's flat. Look at the horizon, it goes. Look, there's no, there's no ball, there's no curve, it's flat. And you can say, well, no, that's actually a perspective. And you could talk about physics to them. You could bring them uh, some astronomy uh, pictures and devices that show the earth and the universe. And you know what their response is going to be. It's going to be something like, yeah, the government just wants you to believe that. No, you can't fool me. The earth is flat. Everywhere I walk, it's flat. I never walked on a curve. I've never been upside down. What are you talking about? People in Australia, they're upside down? You crazy? The earth is flat. Now you can try to argue to them till you're blue in the face. And you're not going to convince them. Why? Is it because there's really a good case to be made for a flat earth? No. It's because they don't want to believe. They don't want to be convinced. There's not an honest assessment here. And that's what we're dealing with in spiritual things. What does it take to believe? Well, Jesus told us earlier that people willingly look away from the truth. He said it was actually impossible to believe. You remember that in John chapter 6? Verse 44, he said, No one, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. It takes a miracle to believe. It takes, it takes an act of God. Now, that does not negate our responsibility to believe. We must believe. The Bible is filled with those kinds of commands as well, that we are called upon to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to have faith in Him, but because we are lost in sin, we don't want to believe. We have to have a changed heart to even want to believe. And our minds are darkened by sin. We don't see the benefit of believing. You can't explain to someone that if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll live more joyful lives than they have before, more fulfilled lives than they have before, more generous lives than they have before. Their minds are darkened by sin. So what does that mean for our mission? It means we cannot rely on ourselves. Too many churches and too many Christians are convinced that what they need to do is draw the biggest crowds, have the perfect music, have impressive events, have persuasive benefits that people can get a hold of. 
But what Jesus is telling us here is that what matters is faithfulness. Prayer. Trusting the Lord to work where and when He will. Eyes that are blind. The second thing that John tells us that is a characteristic of unbelief are hard hearts. Now, John explains to us that unbelief is moral and not intellectual. It's not that people are not persuaded. They don't want to be persuaded. They've already made a choice and have committed themselves to self and sin. And so God is going to act as a result of that. God responds by hardening their hearts further. And this could not be clearer in the Bible. John cites another chapter from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. A famous chapter that many of you are well aware of. And there Isaiah is given a mission by God. You remember that God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, oh, oh, send me. And God says, I'm going to send you. But my mission I'm sending you on, the people won't listen to you. Now, I would have liked to have seen Isaiah's face when God said that. I'm going to go on a mission, and the mission is the people won't hear me. In fact, we might say that Isaiah's mission is preaching that will provoke a negative response out of the people. They will hear the message. And they will hate the message. And what John does is, he relates that to Jesus' message here, to God's people. Jesus brings the message they need, and the people hate it. We've seen this over and over again. They try to tell Jesus what he should be doing, who he should be, what they want. And this is something the Gospels are clear on. We see it not just here in John 12. Matthew quotes the same verses in Isaiah in Matthew 13. And Mark does the same thing in Mark 4. And Luke does the same thing in Luke 8. It's interesting that each of them quote this passage from Isaiah to make their point. Exactly what Isaiah had predicted is happening. The people could not believe. But we shouldn't think that people want to believe and God is preventing them. It's not as if people are coming to God and saying, oh, 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 we we want to believe in Jesus. And God says, sorry, you had your chance. You're done. Slam the door. Put up a brick wall. Throw it a deadbolt. You're done. And as if they're begging, oh, we so want to believe. Why won't you let us believe? That's sometimes how we think about the sovereignty of God, but that's not what's going on here. This passage is not an election passage. It's not a passage about election by God. It's not as if God is telling them, I won't let you believe. Now, you don't have to take just my opinion of this. If you want to understand that this is not an election passage, we can listen to Mr. Election himself, John Calvin. John Calvin has this to say about this passage. In this passage, we ought to consider not so much the foreknowledge of God, that is election, as his justice 
and vengeance. For God declares not what he beholds from heaven that men will do, but what he himself will do. That is, he will strike wicked men with giddiness and stupidity and thus will take vengeance on their obstinate wickedness. Calvin had a way with words, didn't he? Now what's he saying here? What he's saying is that their rebellion led to the hardening of hearts. What it means is they had closed their eyes to God's truth. And then God declared that he would seal them shut. The context for this hardening is the existing rejection of God by sinners. It's as if God is saying, you want darkness? I'll give you darkness. Darkness is all you'll get. That's what God is saying here. Now, this concept should frighten you. It takes away all thoughts of putting off God. Young people, do not think that you can ignore God now and then get around to Him later. Adults, don't trust that there will always be time to repent and believe. Not only is now the time, Jesus is telling you that you are flirting with judgment if you do not come to him. If you keep unbelieving, God may harden you in that unbelief. And this hardening is God giving sinners over to themselves. That's what the judgment is. So how does God do that? Again, it's not that he slams the door in the face of a willing seeker. The Bible describes it as God giving people over to their sin. That is, he lets sinners have what they want. That's the most frightening thing. Sinners get what they want, or think they want, and they're happy about it. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that God gave them up to the lusts of their own heart. And they desired more and more sin and got further and further from God. The psalmist writes, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. They become more and more confirmed in their sin. It's as if you had something in your ears and couldn't hear me. I know that's hard to, to imagine, but you couldn't hear me. And instead, you put noise-canceling earbuds in. And then you put over-the-top canceling earbuds in. And then you wrapped your head in a towel. Do you wonder why you would hear less and less and less? And you'd be less and less and less likely to be convinced? It's a willing action. It's a hardening. But that does not defeat God's purpose. You see, we might come to this and see a hardened people that God hardens. What's God doing? He's going to lose them. No. It's a part of his larger plan. You see, what John will tell us and Paul will lay forth in all of his letters is that the blinding of the Jews led to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so the church has exploded. 
And Paul will tell us that even that serves the purpose of God's people, the Jews. He tells us in Romans 11 that what that does is it provokes the Jews to jealousy and gives God an audience, if you will, with the Jews again. This is all a part of God's plan. You and I are evidence of God's sovereign control. Gentiles who have come to believe in Jesus. But the gospel is a two-edged sword. It brings life to those who believe. And it brings judgment on unbelief. So what will you do today? Will you hear the call of Jesus and believe? Or will you reject him? Put him off and risk the judgment of God? Well, we've already seen that unbelief is rooted in sin. Sin also makes us love the wrong things. Unbelief flows from the love of the wrong things. We love self more than God. We love darkness, not light. And John shows us this explicitly in verses 42 and 43. He writes, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now this is another instance, we've seen this before, of John describing belief or faith in quotes. It's just intellectual assent. There's no depth to this. It will not survive. It's like the seed that was planted in shallow ground. It springs up, but it withers away. These people here are willing to assent to Jesus, to agree with him, to say Jesus makes some good points. You know, I like the way he interpreted the Old Testament. But they're not willing to trust him. And that, beloved, is the essence of faith. Trusting Jesus. They wanted the praise of men more than they wanted to trust Jesus. They were afraid of what would happen if they publicly identified with Jesus. That's the definition of not trusting Jesus. That's not real trust. So what does it mean to truly believe? What John is telling us here is that an essential part of that is to be willing to publicly confess Christ. Stand up and be counted. To be a part of God's people. To confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus comments about this in Matthew chapter 10. It's actually a quite frightening verse again. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father. Do you hear that? That should be enough to make us shudder a little. And at least take a personal inventory about how public we are about our faith. But the question you should ask yourself is, what matters more to you? What matters more to you today? Is it the praise of friends at school? Is it a promotion at work? 
Are you deliberately vague about your relationship with Jesus? When someone comes and talks to you, do you say, well, yeah, I'm a spiritual person. Or, yeah, I go to church. Or do you confess that Jesus is your Savior? Do you want to hear from others in the world, we affirm you, we support you? Or do you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Calvin again has a wonderful statement on this. He says, can anything be more foolish than to prefer the silly applause of men to the judgment of God. And so the question comes, do you love Jesus? If you do, you are faced with a choice. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. Now it's certainly true of God and money, but it's true of much more than that as well. What you love says a lot about your heart. What you are fixed upon. And what we need to do is fix our hearts and our eyes on Jesus. We need to have eyes to see Jesus. Isaiah did. You know, there's this very interesting statement in verse 41. It's so interesting that if you read this passage too quickly, you'll miss it. John writes, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, do you remember what Isaiah is saying? You remember this famous chapter, Isaiah 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood two seraphim, or stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And as one called to another, he said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see what John's saying here in verse 41? Isaiah's talking about Jesus. He saw Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is the representation of God. Jesus is the revelation of God, both in the Old and New Testaments. John is saying that Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne. He saw Jesus' glory. And so the question I ask is, do you? Because if you see Jesus' glory, you can't have a blind eye. You can't have a hard heart. You're struck by the glory of the Messiah. And all you want to do is love him and serve him. God is not surprised by unbelief. He knows the hearts of sinners. He knows that it's only by a miracle of regeneration that the dead can live and the blind can see. And he also knows that sinners are under judgment for their unbelief. And so he warns you today that he can let you go your own way. That sounds good at first, but it's truly frightening. There is nothing worse than being left to yourself. Pray that God would intervene and bring you to himself. That he would glorify himself in your life. 
pray that he would free you from unbelief. Let's pray.